The Pinball Network is online. Launching Pinball Innovators and Makers Podcast. Hi, and welcome to the Pinball Podcast focused on the innovators and makers who are crafting homebrew, custom, and retheme pinball machines, the technology that makes these personal projects possible, and the companies helping with these journeys. Custom pinballs are a deeply personal and technically challenging undertaking, requiring time, money, knowledge, and most importantly, the desire to make it happen. I'm Dan Rosenstein, your host. Join me and let's go under the play field and see what's needed to make a custom pinball possible. Hello, pinball makers and innovators. Pinball show season is starting, and this episode we have Dave Marston from Pintastic New England and a New England pinball maker, John Day. Dave, why don't you go first, introduce yourself, and let the listener know how you your, your pinball origin story started. Okay, I started pinball in 1967, and over the years I've uh, seen how the community has come together. Of course, there was really no community when I started. I was before Tommy was a hit record, and <laughs> I was an operator for a while, uh, been to all the pinball expos in Chicago, so I've recorded a lot of history, made careful notes of what people said, which uh, has served me well over time. And I've been published in many of the uh, pinball fan magazines over the years, particularly the Pinball on Record series of columns in the Pin Game Journal that people would remember me for. And around New England, I'm known for showing up at all kinds of pinball events. And I helped to host the New England Pin Fest, which ran from 1991 to 1995, mm-hmm. but was a much smaller show than Pintastic, scaled way down. And so, I'm, I'm still doing it. No, that, that, that's awesome. So y- you got your start, you know, quite, quite a long time ago. Um, do you, what are your first memories of, of, of pinball? Do you remember your first games playing? How old were you when, 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 when you started in the hobby? Well, it's uh, sort of a two-phase thing. So my uncle had a home-use pinball machine in his basement in the 50s, and I just knew it was there. And eventually I I got enough knowledge of pinball to realize it was a flipperless game that an operator had sold off to home-use once flippers made the flipperless games obsolete. Uh, And then... That was just sort of in the back of my mind until I made a friend in high school who was uh, more into going to a nearby arcade after school and playing a few games, uh, three for a quarter back then. (laughs) And that just, uh, you know, from my having uh, access to Billboard magazine, I had an idea of how the business worked. And so I was able to put a few things together and. Uh, become an operator uh, soon after that. Uh, that 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 first flipperless game. Do you by any chance recall what it was? Oh, I still have it. It's the PNS Shooting Stars from 1947. Oh, how cool it's is that? Early post-war game. Uh, shooting refers mainly to wartime shooting because there was this hangover from World War II. So there's fighter jets pictured on the glass and stuff. Um, but the first game I got with a schematic so I could start figuring things out was Gottlieb Diamond Lil. Got it. 
Um, and so, uh, uh, as it, so, 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 so you played, you were exposed, you had it in your, in, in, you know, in, in your, your, your family member's home. Um, and then, uh, you, you, you got, got into operating. Um, do you want to, do you want to tell the listener kind of how those first years of operating went and how long, how long, can you remind me how, how long you were operating for? Uh, not very long. It was of course, uh, the early seventies being a time when there was a huge boom in pinball, I would say bigger than the boom that we remember from the early nineties, uh, because of Tommy and, uh, the media taking hold. I like to say that pinball and pinball operators and pinball distributors cannot put on a publicity blitz that makes pinball cool. It's got to be somebody who's already established as cool, like a rock group like The Who. If they say pinball is cool, then we can just ride along with it and say, see, we're into it before it was cool. So, so it sounds like we really need to get Taylor Swift to say the pinball is cool, and then we might have we might we might have a, even a larger resurgence than we have right now. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> All right, uh, uh, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Got to get the licensing people on the case. <laughs> make that happen. All right. Well, we we have we have a second guest uh, as well on the show, um, John John Day. Um, John, now now it's your turn. How did you get the bug for pinball? Where where did it start for you? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I think it started for me um, probably in the very early 1970s, around about 73. Uh, a Gottlieb Kingpin showed up at my local Zare store. And my brother, I had an older brother, excellent pinball player, by the way. And he actually had a few quarters and uh, stuck a few quarters in the game. And I was fascinated by it. You know, the mechanics of it, the flashing, the, well, not quite flashing lights, but the, you know, the insert lamps, the uh, just the whole, the score reels, everything about it was fascinating to me. And uh, so loved playing. It didn't really have a lot of money, so couldn't really play it very often. My brother would occasionally give me a, a ball to play, but uh, really loved doing that when he yeah. when he did that. We but, should point out that Zare is a discount department store. They were around New England. Uh, Kmart is the closest thing I can right. equate to, and even those are gone now for the most part. So, but. Yeah, just random stores used to have pinball back then. It was it was awesome. It really was. And I still remember when the game was actually like someone went to repair it. I was there and then they opened up the play field. I saw, you know, the relay board, and the score motor. And uh, I think it actually I'm an electrical engineer, you know, by by career. And um, I believe pinball actually influenced me to really you know pursue electronics as a career. Uh, at a very, very early age. So, um, so I couldn't really afford to like play pinball, you know, a quarter, it was, you know, you're only like eight years old or nine years old with a paper route or whatever. Um, so I actually made my first pinball machine probably when I was maybe 10 or 11. So I took a you know sheet of plywood that was from an old kitchen cabinet um, that my parents, you know, like the old cabinets were downstairs, cut up the side of it, made a smaller than what we would use today, playboard with, you know, nails and rubber bands and, um, aluminum foil and a uh, calculator repurposed for doing scoring and then mechanical flippers, you know, with coat hangers and all that kind of stuff. So, but I literally went through like two or three revisions of a homemade pinball machine at home um, when I was probably maybe 10, 12 years old, something like that. So uh, I, I, I had no idea. That's absolutely fascinating that you've been, you've been a pinball maker and innovator for, for, for that long. That's yeah. That, that, yeah. <laughs> since I was a little kid. <laughs> yeah. You, it's been, been uh, yeah, a real fascinating hobby. 
Do do you by any chance have 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 that initial in, in initial build still, or do you have pictures uh, of wish, it? I wish I did. Unfortunately, my parents' uh, basement had some like water damage, and unfortunately, sure. that was a uh, that was a a um, victim of that. So I unfortunately don't have it. I have very vast, very good memories of it. Um, but unfortunately I don't have it. So that would be a really, really cool thing to have today as an adult. So unfortunately I don't have it. So, uh, but after that, um, you know, played it, loved pinball playing it on, um, you know, on route and, and was fascinated when games transitioned from, you know, EMs to the early solid state games, you know, games like Matahari and, and, you know, ultimately, you know, Paragon and, you know, eight ball deluxe and, you know, anytime, um, I had a chance to play pinball, I would, we would do it. There was a place called just fun. That was, uh, that we'd pedal our bicycles up to. It was, uh, it what was, town? uh, it was in Chicopee mass is mm -hmm. where I grew up. And, uh, so we'd pedal our bicycles there and there'd be, I don't know, maybe 30 or 40 games there. And, uh, uh, I, you know, I, I didn't, again, I could play maybe two or three and then I, you know, my quarters would be gone. Um, but I would still hang out there and watch other people play and, particularly interested when a game was broken and a technician would come over and, and then try to fix it. Or, and then I would immediately like glom onto him and start asking him a bunch of questions and, you know, stare at it. So, uh, um, so I think I really caught the bug at an extremely early age. And so John, um, you know, you, you, you just gave kind of two, the two different dichotomies of, of pinball playing and, and, and repair and, and the technology behind it. And so, you know, you, you, you said that you would spend time watching others play when you ran out of quarters, but you'd also enjoy seeing the, the machine get repaired. If you had to peg one, which one was actually more exciting for you watching? Another I think player? for me, it was, it was probably the repair guy. I probably was more interested in the implementation, like how does the mechanics work on it? How does the electronics work? You know, what's that MPU there and what's that microprocessor? How's that, how's the scoring work? Right. What's the, I didn't really quite even understand software probably at that point. I do today, of course, but um, you know, at that point I probably didn't really have a full understanding of what an MPU was and how that would work, but anything I could learn from that was fascinating to me. And, and uh, so I used to get, you know, I befriended the techs, you know, would talk to chat with them and, you know, ask them all the questions I could, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure it was, uh, I'm sure it was draining for them. <laughs> you know, they were just trying to fix the game rather than have some kid, you know, ask them a bunch of questions. But, um, but I was uh, any knowledge or anything that I could look at there was uh, certainly very interesting. Absolutely. Um, John, or excuse me, Dave, go, going back to you, since you were routing games at roughly this exact, exact time, um, you know, when you were repairing a machine and there was a kid standing there, what was, what was your perspective on it? Was it like, I got to get this machine done and move on? Or did you, did you take the time and show them what, what was going on? Oh, I suppose my perspective was probably a crass commercial one of say anything to the kid that'll make him more interested in pumping coins into it after I'm done. And, and there's always that thing where you can leave one game on there and let the kid play a free one. And exactly right. Start them in. And the operators would do that. So a lot of times they would, they would like fix it and they'd leave a credit on. They say, okay, why don't you test play? Oh, absolutely. You know, and, you know, Boy, that's an incentive it. Yeah. to keep you hanging around the repair guy. Absolutely. Yeah, that's true. That's a great point. And many of the techs absolutely did that. So, uh, so I was able to buy my first pinball machine, which I, of course I really wanted to own one, you know, a real commercial game. And uh, when I was in college, I was at uh, UMass in Amherst and um one of I met a fellow that was a router that worked for um, I forget the name of the company they were in Needham that was uh, was one of the big routing companies um, you you would probably know the name they were somewhere on one twenty eight 
Yeah, Needham, I don't. I don't it might not have been Needham, but anyway, but they were a pretty big distributor of pens, and he worked there. And he told me about uh, Gottlieb Genie that they were going to basically take off route, and he could sell to me. And I was like, I'll take it. And so my roommate and I, my roommate was a mechanical engineer. He made a loft to lift the beds off of the floor up, you know, towards the ceiling. So we can gain enough space to put a Gottlieb genie into our dorm room. So, so the two of us literally went up there late at night, you know, after classes, drove up there with his father's pickup truck. Uh, we were at, you know, drove from Amherst to, you know, 128 or whatever, where it was, grabbed the machine deadlifted it because we did not have, um, you know, hand trucks or Escaleras or any of that kind of stuff at that time. So the two of us deadlifted a genie from the student parking lot all the way into our dorm room and then set it up and uh, had, a, had a genie in my dorm room, like my, my whole time at college. It was awesome. Genie's a fantastic game. It's got so much, de- uh, you know, complexity, different types of shots, and a lot of different things that you can do in it. Especially since, like, you, you look at it, it seems just like a, you know, one level play field. But it's and it's 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 absolutely incredible. And and the fact that you're you 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 doing electrical engineering, your 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 roommate doing mechanical engineering, you guys, he, he he built the loft and you put the machine in there. That's that's absolutely incredible. Well, it was uh, super fun. I mean, it was, and we were like the room that when you walked into the dorm, we were the first room there. So we'd have the door open, everybody overplaying. It was, it was super fun. We had such great time. But you know, one of the problems back then is uh, parts. You know, I did not know that Steve Young existed at that time. If I did, my gosh, I would be buying stuff from him all the time as I do today. But um, so when things would break on Genie, you would have to MacGyver it. So literally I would have like old pen you know, the springs from an old ballpoint pen, you know, to, you know, respun to try to replace maybe a broken flipper spring and just all kinds of stuff. There was just all kinds of hacks, unfortunately, that I had in Genie as, as the game aged, just because I didn't have a known source of parts at the time, which is too bad because, you know, today I could have made that game play beautifully, you know, with knowing the sources of parts that we have available to us today. Yep, yep. Uh, absolutely. So let, let's actually go back, back, back to Dave for a sec. Dave, um, after after operating, what did you, you know, what what did you go do with 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 pinball? Well, I needed to actually make a living, so uh, uh, computer software was my career, and certainly learning the the and and or logic, and then seeing the uh, diamond little with a schematic, I could relate what I already knew abstractly about ands and ors to that. Uh, so from the late 70s onward, I would do some buying and selling of games for the home and take a repair gig here and there. Uh, but I also have a, another business where I buy and sell collectible records, oh. you know, related to being a jukebox operator. That, hmm. that got me some connections there. So so I had uh, plenty to do for, for sideline stuff. And hmm. one of the things about operating – People talk about uh, getting the location. Is it a good location or, you know, there are uh, criminal elements who uh, work there or patronize the place. But another thing you have to think about when you're operating is how are you going to take vacation? Because to take a vacation as an operator, you have to trust somebody else to look after your machines while you're away and you know they would have access to the cash and all that stuff, so that's a thing that I could see. I had too many other interests, and I wouldn't want to be tied down. Being an operator is for someone who knows I'm going to be living in this town 
for the indefinite future. And I don't need to totally go away for two weeks at a time and, and I can stay put and tend to my games. So I could see that was a, a divergence and I didn't need to be an operator. Totally. Um, so, so, so those are the early years for both of you, um, which, which is a, a great start. I love, I love starting and hearing how, how people got, got into pinball. So uh, Dave, why don't we um, now turn to Pintastic and talk about the show. Um, that's one of the reasons that we're, we're, we're talking and, you know, what, what is it, what do you do for it? And, you know, why, why are you on this podcast for, for pinball innovators and makers? What's, you know, what's the connection? Well, I think we do have the strongest support for uh, pinball innovators of any show. And I should say we are a big comprehensive pinball show. So, so we have tournaments, including one that's on the Stern Pro Circuit. And we have a seminar program, which not very many shows have. And we have the usual free playroom, uh, the vendor hall. We have flea market, uh, weather permitting. Um, and various kinds of collateral entertainment going on. Uh, this year, we're going to have live music two nights and karaoke on Thursday, where apparently uh, we're going to hear John Borg's singing voice, <laughs> uh, which is a legend in the pinball industry, apparently. <laughs> um, but to talk specifically to your audience about the uh, game customizers, game builders, creators, modders. So we start right out with, with the vendor hall. You get your mods, get your parts. But then at the other end of the scale, because we have a seminar program, we are bringing in professional designers. So if you bring your custom game to Pintastic New England, this year for the first time, there's going to be a special room, the custom game showcase that will be just for those games, uh, we opened up the registration of games about two weeks ago, and already we have six custom games hmm. registered. So that's uh, that's probably about half of what the room can hold. And and John hasn't registered. Oh yeah, I need. To, I know I, that was a mental note I made when you said that. I'm like, yeah. I haven't registered yet. I need to do that. So I will take care of that. So <laughs> so people like Steve Ritchie and John Borg are going to go into that room and presumably Mark Seiden, who graduated out of there to be a <laughs> professional designer himself. Uh, and they'll look at the games and they'll spend time talking with the people. Uh, we expect a lot of the pinball media. Uh, even if you can't make it out this year, uh, Dan, sometime uh, we hope you will, but uh, there are plenty of uh, podcasters and people with video cameras and, uh, we found that just having all the custom games in one little cluster kind of at the end of the line of games uh, is not uh, the best for the media and the people who want to ask questions and the makers uh, standing next to their game trying to describe it in a, in a big, full, noisy room. So mm -hmm. our experiment this year is to have a separate showcase, separate room, uh, carpeted and uh, a lower density of games 
Yeah, at at the Northwest Pinball Show, um, the all the customs were actually against a wall on a different side where the food and the tournament happened to be. And while it was nice having them them segmented, what I'm really liking hearing what what you're doing, and I, I applaud you for it. First of all, I applaud you for for supporting the makers and innovators and and giving a showcase for them. That custom game showcase room sounds awesome. But the fact that it is a room where it's segmented off, like the makers can be there, like they can have in depth conversations. It's not you know it's not blasted by the noise of the rest of the show uh, that's going to be a really nice touch i you know I, I if i can make it out i'm super happy to to be there but even if not just seeing video of, of you know uh, uh, audio and 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 seeing pictures I'm, I'm super excited to you know for the makers and innovators who are going to be there um also are- on the seminar program we are going to have our usual uh homebrew developer showcase uh where not all the homebrew developers, because there's so many, but a selected few will be on a panel and uh, they will talk. And usually they talk empowerment. Like I thought I wouldn't be able to handle this, but uh, because of the community or, mm-hmm. you know, people like linoleum who are very good at uh, being a resource for other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's been something we've had all along. And this year we're going to have a couple other seminars Uh we had Dick Hamill come in for about 10 minutes a couple of years ago and just describe what he's been doing with the rule updates for the uh, early Bally and Stern Electronics games, that era. And that uh, is going to expand into a, a bigger seminar. So for people who like to hack the rules, we've got that. Um, mm-hmm. We always try to get uh, someone to talk about art and changing the art. We haven't succeeded in that yet. I have people I keep nagging to come out and talk to our people about uh, doing pinball art. Uh, Sound, you know, we've had sound guys in the past talk about that. So whatever part of pinball you like to customize, or if you want to start from scratch and build a whole new game, we have people at the show who have done that. And so it's uh, uh, not just that they're there at the show, but by seeing them in the seminar room, you can figure out who's who and what they've done and their specialties. Now, 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 Dave, um, where is the show? I know it's in 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 uh, New England, but where where specifically? Marlboro, Massachusetts, which is part of what they call Metro West Boston. <laughs> so. Uh, just a mile off of Interstate 495, which is the outer beltway around Boston. And the, the dates for the show? September 7th to 10th. 2023. So coming up this... The, 2023, uh, yeah. yeah. And then in, in 2024, we'll be switching to April dates. So 11th to 14th. So... April. We'll 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 post the 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 link to the show um in the show notes. Um, hey. uh, uh, John, I, did, if I cut you off, were you going to say something? Oh no no not at all no we're okay. good thank you uh, awesome so um it, uh, with that um so Dave you brought John along with you not just to tell about the awesome showcase that's going to happen and the seminars and the rest of the show for 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 innovators makers of the the general pinball community or the pinball community at larger I should I should say um so 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 John what is your connection to pinball innovating and making oh sure yeah absolutely so um so I have had the fortune of implementing um, several games with Dick Hamill's um, code updates. In fact, the a Meteor that I own uh, runs that code update. And I've also converted a Stars, a Galaxy, 
uh, Flash Gordon, and I think I've done five meteors in total in the Boston area with can this you, code. Can you quickly talk for the listener that might not know about uh, those code updates and what what? Yeah, what it's, it's his Dick's approach is phenomenal. Um, on the classic Bally Stern, uh, they're called the Bally 35 and Bally 17 MPUs, and Stern kind of more or less has a copy of that electronics. On the top of the MPU, there is a connector called J5 that is typically unused on the Bally implementations. So Dick used a Arduino, which is a programmable computer, very inexpensive. And then he connected the Arduino to that J5. And what it does is it disables the software on that MPU and then reconnects. It takes it has full access to all of the game switches, lamps, and solenoids. And so now the Arduino has full control of the game. So then he completely, he wrote what's called a Bally Stern OS, which is a operating system for the game itself that manages, you know, the displays, player count, all the standard backend um, stuff that goes on in a game. And then you now have the ability of writing your own rules, which is super cool. And you can do your own, like a track mode and starburst patterns or whatever you feel like I on have the a question for you. It's awesome. Uh, how does that Arduino compare in power to the original processor? That's an excellent question. So the one that I currently have in Meteor has uh, 256K of flash. Um, so the original only had eight. So that gives you some idea of the ratios. So, you know, 256 over eight. Um, the original processor ran at one megahertz. Um, that particular one's running at 20 megahertz. So it's it's roughly 20 times the power. It's a number like that, 20 to 25 times. So it's great. So now, you know, the original designers, they were all very code limited because, you know, EPROMs, you know, memory was extremely expensive at that time. And the processor were running very old technology and MOS type technologies that were very slow. And nowadays, you know, memory is very inexpensive. We know that from our phones. And uh, so it takes advantage of all the modern technology. It's all written in C. Uh, and the great thing is Dick totally open sourced it. So you go on GitHub, he's got a great GitHub site there. You grab the OS and then there are community contributors that have, have completed specific game implementations. Um, I believe Dick did uh, Meteor, uh, I think maybe his brother, I'm not, don't quote me on that, but someone else did uh, Galaxy, a really, really nice Galaxy implementation that I've done recently. And there's someone else who did Flash Gordon and so forth. So it's just, it's awesome. Yeah. And, 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 and what's amazing about it, and, and Dave keyed in on this as he was talking about the show and who's going to be at the show and the, the different seminars, like there's all these different aspects of the hobby, art, sound, code, electronics, you know, a cabinet building, um, our uh, uh, art and design, but then game rules as well. And, and the nice thing is that this gives a amazing starting point to a machine that already exists, it's built. It has, you know, a, a play field. It has a rule set. It has, um, it, 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 it has its own lore, if you will. Um, but with, you know, by if you have comfort programming and that's the thing that you want to do or you want to learn how to do, then it's it's a great entry. You get one of these old Bally or Stern machines, and you're now creating your own rule set, your own your own light shows. You know, you 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 can add lane. Uh, uh, um, uh, 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 yeah, lane change. Thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah, you, you certainly can. It's true. Um, so uh, it also adds sound. Is that's, that's another major part of the upgrade is that there is a, um, it's basically they call wave trigger, which is a polyphonic, um, you know, wave player. And it can play up to like 13 
you know, uh, wave files simultaneously. And so the beauty of that is you can have background music, you can have call outs and you can have multiple call outs that are sort of all on top of each other. That's a total game changer. So instead of the wing type of noise that you get in a meteor, you now have voice, you have all kinds of music in the background. I, I feel like it takes a game like meteor, which is, you know, 79, 1980. It, it makes it more like an 89, you know, it almost makes it really of almost a well, Williams you, system you 11 class machine. Thought too. What about, um, couldn't you change the displays to alphanumeric? Um, well, so that's a great question. And that, re that would that? require some significant hardware changes, but it is technically possible. Um, now, you, you, it would require like you add on some board or something. Yeah, you would have to, you'd have to, um, that would require redesigning the interface board. The interface board that Dick came out with is very simple. It literally is the J5 to Arduino and there's virtually no components on it. And by the way, there's a jumper. So you can run the old code or the new code, which is even cooler on the same game. And uh, so, um, so it would require kind of a redesign of that if you want to change the displays, but you're absolutely right. That's definitely doable. And in fact, there's some makers that are doing uh, like LED, excuse me, LCD displays in place of the standard plasmas. And then they have like different style digits. They look like Nixie tubes and all mm -hmm. kinds of stuff like that. So, um, so you're right. You could certainly do that. The base, um, you know, our, uh, the base system um, doesn't support that at this time, but certainly that could be, um, you know, added with a board revision in the future for sure. So, what are some um, custom software updates that you've you've made um, for your games? Yeah, so that's a great. Um, so um, the stuff that I have been working on is a bit of a different project that I've written all the software for uh, for the. Games which uh, Dick are you running Dick Hamill's code? I'm more or less running his the various um, shared GitHub images that are available out there. So I've not done a lot of okay. customization on on the uh, the games that are running Dick Hamill's code because they're actually quite good. I mean, they're really, really, really well done. So uh, what I've been working on personally is a is a little bit of a different tact, and that is a hybrid EM game. So that is to bring solid state rules into a, a very good playing EM game that could kind of use some, some help. And so that's the project that I'll be, I plan to bring to Pintastic and, and uh, discuss when I'm there. So I want to know a ton more about this and I'm sure the listener does also. So I, I had in the note and Dave had told me that you had done rule updates for SS and EM games. And I was like, EM games, I want to hear more about this. So sure. I, 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 obviously if you're bringing the, the, the game to the show, maybe there's some things you want to hold, which is fine, but I'd love to hear and the listener would love to hear what, what this is all about. Let me yeah. give, let me give yeah. one little note as a perspective that if I change the rules in an EM, like when I was operating, um, it would be moving a wire over, you know, taking the relays that are already there. There's a hundred point relay, there's a 50 point relay, there's a 10 point. And I say this, this should score 50 because it rings the bell more and it makes it sound like more is going on. Yeah. Then that's my idea of how you change the rules on an EM. <laughs> but how do you change the rules? Yeah, on yeah. And, and, and by the way, that was a very good approach, certainly, and very efficient, like what you did as an operator. Um, in this particular case, I, I acquired a game called the Target Alpha, uh, 1976, uh, Godly Warfare. Fa fantastic shooter. It's an amazing. And it's a game. wonderful shooter. 15 drop targets, two stand ups, pop bumpers, asymmetric layout. It's a fantastic shooter. But it has one flaw, one glaring flaw. And do you know what that is? 
when you play the game? It's the well, it's the four players. So the 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 bank reset would be what that I would is say. correct. Yeah, and so the game actually tortures good players. So it does the exact opposite of what a game should do. So if you're a really good player and you're able to shoot down all of the oh, targets, you have nothing to do, which is so annoying. And you can't just reset the target banks, like add a relay and reset them, because guess what? The bonus is stored in yeah. the state of the target. So if you reset the banks, you'll then torture the player by losing all of his accumulated bonus. Nick Nick Ballridge, who was on the podcast in episode eight, would say, well, just install a gobble hole and then everyone's going to be happy. But clearly, <laughs> clearly that's not the direction you went. Yeah, no, I, I was not. I'll, I have a drill press in my basement. So technically, I could have done a draw, gobble hole with that. was not the approach I chose to take. So um, the bonus unit also on a target alpha, if you've ever serviced one of those, it's a very nasty mechanism it's loud it you know the whole machine shakes it scans each one of the drop targets uh to either give you a thousand point or two thousand point if it's the last ball um and uh it's also very problematic it's a game it's actually a, a unit that very often it'll miss score you'll get an extra thousand or less than a thousand so if you're playing tournament it's a frustrating game because sometimes the game will not score correctly it's nasty so i started the whole project by basically putting a designing a solid state bonus unit. So basically removing the uh, the mechanical bonus unit and then designing a custom circuit board with a microprocessor on it and then um, and then basically scanning all of the targets and then being able to send the bonus uh, to the relay board. And so the first phase of the project was dealing with all of the interfaces between AC and DC and DC and AC. Um, one of the advantages you have with like Dick Hamill's approach is that's entirely a DC game. Yep. So you have, you know, 43 volt DC for the uh, flipper, you know, for the coils, and then you have a, you know, five volt supply for the MPU. And so it's very straightforward. Everything's on a common ground. So it's very, very easy to do those interfaces. Unfortunately, with an EM, everything is AC. And then, uh, so there is no like ground interface. There, it doesn't exist. And then the microprocessor is running at five volts DC. And so you have to provide an interface between AC and DC, and then another interface from DC back to AC. So uh, so I ended up using these opto isolators to get from the AC to DC domain, and then some relays to get from DC back to the AC domain, and then a, cost, a power supply to power it off the GI lamps and you know a bridge rectifier and such. So that first bonus unit, um, was really kind of a test to be able to deal with, you know, could 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 I could I design a controller that could deal with interfacing to the AC inputs, um, run on a microprocessor, and then deal with the AC outputs. So, so that first board design uh, put into it into my target alpha. I also have a friend that has a Solar City who's also an engineer. So we converted both of those games, and then we now had a solid state bonus unit, which was awesome. But um, that was kind of the first part of the journey. What we really wanted to get to was be able to basically control everything on the play field. Like we wanted to have all of the inserts be individually controlled, um, RGB LEDs there, you know, like modern games would have. Uh, we want to be able to have sound callouts potentially in addition to, you know, the standard chimes that the game has. And then we want to be able to have controls of the bank reset which is a critical part because it was a real motivating factor to modify the game. And that's interesting that one of the things that you 
do not have much priority on is the score reels. Like you're happy to continue to have the oh, mechanical absolutely. score reels. Yeah. So um, that's a great that's a great point, Dave. Um, because I really I, I have a huge passion for EMs. I don't want to irreversibly modify the game. So one of the major tenets of the design is that uh, that the game retains all of its EMness. So meaning that. The head is completely unaltered, so all the score reels, the um, the player unit, all of that stays intact. There's no changes there whatsoever. Nothing changes really on the relay board either. So in other words, the score motor, all the standard relays for resetting the game, uh, for you know maintaining uh, last player and all that kind of stuff, um, coins, you know, all the coin ups, all that stuff is all retained. So nothing changes there. And the only modifications that we did where there would be situations where we would want access to the switches, for example, of the each of the drop targets. So those go into the bonus unit. There's a wire harness that comes in. So there's like 15 wires. We unsoldered those from the bonus unit, removed it, and then put a connector there that could be reversed back to the original if you really wanted to. And then there are maybe a dozen or two other similar connections where we want to have access to a switch where we're not, we don't want the relay board to be triggered by that. We want the microprocessor controller to see that switch closure instead, so we can write our own game rules for it. And uh, so we would unsol unsolder the original wire, you know, heat shrink it, tie it back, and then bring our own wire from the microprocessor into that switch. So and, they're about. And 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 that's actually a, a a a pretty fascinating piece of this, which is you know as we get later solid state machines, and Nick talked about this last last episode. Um, it's all about separation of function, separate you know separation of interface. Um, the EMs actually had that also. You talked about the bonus unit, you talked about the player unit, you talked about the score reels, you talked about the the the, the relay system. Like it, it's it, although it doesn't seem like it, there actually is a very good separation of functions. So the fact that you're able to wed in and connect in a meaningful way your ACDC interfaces and then go into micro control of those AC systems is is, is actually pretty amazing. Um, but it's not it's also not that uh crazy of an idea because of the separation that those Gottliebs had. Um, I happen to have a Magnetron that I did a full restore on. I'm in the final <laughs> phase of it. It only took me 10 years to do. Um, and, and so for the two machines that you mentioned that you've got uh, the bonus uh, unit updated, um, I think Mag Magnetron falls into that that sweet spot. Also those mid seventies um, <laughs> uh, machines, but anyways, keep, keep, keep going with your story. Oh, absolutely. No, I think you've hit on a very good point, Dan. And that is that the Gottliebs are not only are they very well-built machines, I mean, they're really beautiful, but uh, but they are, as you point out, um, you know, each unit is kind of if you really understand electronics and you understand the separation of the way these work, then you can stitch this in. So, for example, like on Gottlieb's, there's the L, M and N relay that are in the head. And uh, those are what basically trigger 10, 100 and 1000 points. And then it's uh, automatic carrier to the 10,000. It's handled by the score reels themselves. So um so what I did is just literally wired, um, there's that uh, Jones plug connector that you have in the head and that comes from the play field. And so literally just tapped an extra three wires onto the L, M and N, you know, Jones plug connector in the head and then your know, Molex connector. And now if I have relays there that I control by the microprocessor, now I can, can trigger a 10 point, a hundred point or a thousand point event. And the EM doesn't know any better. It's the same thing as a switch closure. It's just a relay, right? So yeah. Or you could say that the the L 
relay is a subroutine that does all the electromechanical stuff that's necessary right. to add a thousand that's points. That's right. That's exactly and, right. And that's those are very late model Gottlieb score reels. So they had really engineered and re-engineered right. and perfected those. So essentially, if you think they've done a better job uh, and you want to keep the EMness, then go ahead and trigger the L relay and it'll take care of everything downstream from there. You're absolutely right, Dave. In fact, the L relay is very cleverly designed. It has a feedback circuit in it that I'm sure you know this, that you know the relay, the actual score reel has to hit an end of stroke switch, which basically opens up the L relay from holding its contact. So it's self-adjusting, like the relay stays asserted for as long as is necessary for the score reel to make a full travel and increment the score. It's very, very well engineered. So you're absolutely right. All we have to do is just generate a pulse just to start the action and the L, M and N relays take care of the rest, which is great. It's, it's interesting. You have three engineers on the call right now, um, all with you know similar yet different backgrounds. And the thing that's most interesting that we're talking about is taking an EM machine, retrofitting pieces of it so it has digital technology, but retaining the EM look and feel of that machine, just making it better in very specific ways. Um, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because, um, you know, I mean, you could it, you could literally just rip all the EM stuff out. I've seen lots of people do that. And then they do a custom controller like a P-Rock or something like that. I don't want to do that you know, with this game. The game's beautiful. You know, the EM part of it is flawless. It plays really, really well. And uh, so I want to take a different approach, which is just, you know, stitch, you know, a solid state controller, but retain all of the EMness, as you called it. Uh, of the game. And it could be reversible for someone in the future if they ever wanted to. I don't know why you would do that, but you certainly could. Um, so uh, so anyway, so in the end, the playfield now has uh, roughly, I think, 21 or so RGB LEDs that are under each insert. Um, ended up designing custom PCBs for those. So, you know, you may or might, may not notice that, but on Target Alpha, the spacing is different between the five <coughs> bank and the 10 bank, the spacing of the, of the, uh, um, each of the inserts. So you know, I had to do two different PCBs to deal with the spacing differences. So, um, but anyway, so there, so there's RGB LEDs that are all there. Um, uh, all of the drop target switches, the standups, the pop bumper, and all of the rollovers for like extra ball and special, those are all now handled by the solid state controller itself. And then, uh, but retained like the out lanes, those are left EM. So like the solid state controller does not deal with the in-lane switches and the out-lane switches. Those were left original because there wasn't really a lot of rule things we were really going to do with that. So we left that as EM. So uh, so it's true hybrid. And then in the relay board, so then there was a small cable. So there's a microprocessor board that is basically scanning all the switches, driving all the RGB LEDs. And then we also added a... Um, well, it's a vacuum fluorescent display. I'm not, I'm not sure if you're familiar with VFDs, but uh, it's a very old technology. That's uh, it's got high voltage and grids inside of it, and very appropriate for an EM. It's it's of that era for a display. So like uh, Nortaki, um, who's the company that made the Gottlieb displays, actually of that era. So it seemed like they were the right vendor to select. So I got a custom uh, a six line by twenty four line display that I mounted under the apron, basically, and then just did a cutout very carefully 
in the apron on the right hand side. So now you have all kinds of information. Like it shows you, you know, the replays, it shows you uh, the game status, bonus. I mean, you name it, how long it's been played, number of balls, all the stats, everything's displayed there, which is kind of fun too. But it's, it's that it's in that old style vacuum formed. Uh, yeah. It's a, yeah. it's actually a vacuum for us and display. It's a VFD. Yeah. So it's of the same era that like a Gottlieb system one would have used. It's of that same sort of era. So yeah. it felt like that was appropriate. So. And, and of so, that information, you need to know how many racks you've cleared, so to speak. Sure. Yeah. Right? So that you wouldn't want to be hacking the play field to put in an insert like a, some of the Bally games where you oh, yeah, track yeah. how many racks you had cleared. That's right. Yeah. You or just, even like Black Hole had that kind of stuff for lower playfield bonus. Yeah. No, definitely yeah. did not want to modify the the playfield's beautiful on this game. So I really yeah. did not want to make any cuts to it. So um, so then there's a small um, cable. It uses a protocol called RS45, which yep. is a, a high, it's a differential protocol. Mm -hmm. Used an old USB cable just because it's shielded and they're cheap and all that kind of stuff. And then that goes to a second microprocessor that sits in the relay board. And then that, um, that second microprocessor drives eight relays. Um, and then those relays are what trigger the L, M, and N relay, which are the tens, hundreds, thousand point. There are two relays to, to reset the 10 uh, target bank, which is the upper target bank, and a second relay for the five target banks. Those can be reset independently. Um, and then there is extra ball, and uh, special. Uh, and then there's also the um, ball return. So like, and the way this works is it intercepts the ball return. So like when the ball drains, there's a switch which gets triggered. And normally that would cause the bonus unit to go through its exercise. And then that would cause the, um, the uh, score motor to advance you to the next ball and the player unit to advance. So what we do is we intercept that so now the now we can um, send our own bonus when the ball lands, and then we can bang, bang, bang the score reels with your bonus. And then when we're done, then we close the relay that now tells the relay board that the ball has just drained and the bonus unit is wired such that it doesn't do any bonus whatsoever. It just immediately advances the next ball, So, which is pretty cool. So, it, so when the ball drains... The, it, 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 you know, it, it shotguns all the bonus just directly to the score reels. And even though it's doing all this bonus, the score motor is not spinning because it doesn't need that because the microprocessor is sending that, uh, that data directly to the LM and N relays. And then when it's finished, then you hear the score motor spin because it, it, it needs to advance the player unit and then kick the ball out for the next ball, which is now when when you were talking, this is absolutely fascinating. I'm 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 absolutely amazed with this. Um, when you were talking about uh, the bonus unit originally, um, you had mentioned that you had I, th I think you had mentioned that you had built a custom board. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. So, are all of these boards that you're talking about all custom boards, or did you get anything that was off the shelf? Yeah, like it's it's all it's all custom. I'm actually an electrical engineer by trade, so I do a lot of PCB designs professionally. So, so I just spun my own custom boards, you know, with you know optos on them, and you know the approach. So they're really designed specifically for this game and this project. So, 
Um, so yeah, there's nothing really off the shelf here, unfortunately. <laughs> no, no, it's to- to- totally fine. I mean, it's it's a it's 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 a custom custom pinball like that's yeah, that, it truly that... really is a custom. It's yeah, yeah. There's nothing it, off the shelf here. So um, I have a, as as a complete aside, I have a 1981 DeLorean, and I've been doing an electric conversion on the car. And one of my goals of that project has been to keep the car looking and feeling as it was from 1981, yep, but have the yep. whole drivetrain underneath it. Um, all switched out. And like, as you're talking about this project with, with, with target alpha, I'm sitting here and I'm like, Oh my God, this is the pinball equivalent of the, of, of, of what I'm, what, what I'm doing with the conversion. So no, it's, That's it's, cool. I, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely in, in, in awe as you're walking through this. Now you said you're an electrical engineer. And so the question I'm going to ask might be a little bit um might, might not make sense at, at, at first, but a lot of people who try to do the types of things that you're doing really come from a software only digital background. Um, and as as you know, analog and digital electronics, there's some similarity, but there's there's mm-hmm. there's some differences as well. And and one of the big differences is the fact with analog electronics, you're actually dealing with a lot of time. Discrete electronics, for all intents and purposes, or yeah, especially for the type of stuff we do, is is generally on or off. It's not there's really not a long element of time for them. And so, do you have any advice or suggestions or or thoughts around um, how folks can better understand analog? electronics ac systems if they understand dc systems yeah um that's interesting because the ac systems have some interesting challenges um one is that they have uh, zero crossing so like if you're looking at an input it actually is asserted and then it's not which is very interesting so you have to write code to deal with that so like the code is set up to deal with um so it so like with a dc system if you have a switch closed for example you'll see a for example logic zero if, the, if there's a pull-up resistor on it and, you know, it's active low, when the switch closes, you'll see a logic zero. Um, and it's with the logic one, the switch isn't closed. In an AC system, what you'll see is a logic one, and then all of a sudden you'll see a logic zero for a while, and then a logic one, and then a logic zero for a while. So, um, so I created in software counters to keep track of statistically how many logic ones have we seen in the last period of time. So the counters would get, you know, incremented with logic ones and decremented with logic zeros. And then you would kind of look at what's the average number of ones that we've seen. And if we've seen enough of those, then it's like, okay, the switch is actually closed. So uh, you're spot on. It's actually not, there are these analog things are interesting considerations that you have uh, with a, with an AC interface that I actually had not thought of. So like right up front, I was getting these weird chattering problems and stuff like that. And then I was like, oh yeah, that's right. It's AC. So this thing's pulsing. (laughs) That's why that's happening. So, uh, so then you just write some software to deal with it. So, so to answer your question, um, you know, I think it's in the end, in the end, you're really, you'll design a interface. So say it's an opto, if you're trying to get from the AC to the DC domain, that's the most common way to do that is a opto, coupler, which is a LED on one side that's connected to the AC system. And then there's a photodiode on the other side, which connects to a, that's the equivalent of a switch. And then you just connect a resist, pull up resistor, and then the microprocessor input connects to that. And then, um, and then you're just scanning it. And then you just have to write some software dealing with the fact that it's going to pulse this number of times. Um, I think one thing that's very useful is to have some, you know, test equipment to understand what the signals look like. So, uh, there are very inexpensive logic analyzers that you can buy these days um, and you know connect those to the microprocessor inputs and then you can look at when the game is playing you can i had to do this several times to look at 
you know, the timing of the score motor and, you know, the timing, because sometimes, you know, you just don't know. I mean, I can guess what it is. I can look at, you know, the uh, wiring diagram that Gottlieb's, you know, gives you and you know how you get the score motor phases and stuff like that. But if you notice, there is no timing there. Right. But you actually need to know those numbers sometime. When you're doing this type of project, you need to know those numbers. So um, so I would just get a you know logic analyzer and oscilloscope and then take a look at the signals themselves. And then when you look at the signals, then you have to translate that to you know what the microprocessor is seeing for ones and zeros that are coming in, and then you have to write appropriate routines. So the software basically it runs off of a one millisecond timer tick. So every wow. one millisecond, there's a tick. And then there are, I think, maybe six or seven threads that run, you know, processors, processes that run, and they run at different intervals. So things like the switch scanning is done at one millisecond intervals. So the switch scanning knows that each time it's reading, exactly one millisecond has occurred wow. between that. We live in, you know, North America, so we have 60 hertz power. So an EM means that we have, you know, 16 milliseconds. So we have basically eight milliseconds in between, you know, per phase. And so you know what that timing is. So you know that you have to see roughly, you know, six in a row for a logic one, and then you'll see two zeros and then six in a row. So you know that by your sampling. So, um, so you have to kind of know the physics behind like what you're looking at. Uh, I think that becomes very apparent if you take like a, a logic analyzer and oscilloscope, and then you can see what the interface looks like. And then once you see that, then set up your software, you have to translate it to a time domain in software, which you commonly do with a, with a task or a system tick or something like that, that's a fixed interval. And then once you know that, then you can uh, write software to deal with those interfacing issues. Like say, if you wanna generate a pulse that's you know 50 milliseconds long, which is what I do with the relays to trigger a relay. Mm -hmm. So there's a, again, a relay management task that you know has a counter in it. And so when it gets a, a queue request to assert the relay, then it's a state machine that knows if the relay is on or off, like what was its previous state. And if it's, you know, if it was, if it's currently busy, yeah, there's there's available, you know, in other words, it hasn't done anything in a while, like idle. So there's idle on and off. So there's three states. So if a relay is in idle and we tell it to assert, then it'll move to the on state and it will stay in the on state for 50 times to be asserted for 50 milliseconds. And then it needs a, a, a breather. So it needs to be off for, say, 100 milliseconds. So then it will go in the off state for 100 cycles. And then it, then it will go back to the idle state. And now it's idle and it's available to be asserted again. So, so all the relays have state machines associated with them, for example, in order to, so they generate pulses that are exact pulse widths that are necessary for the EM. So, and again, I, you know, put an oscilloscope on the game and, you know, looked at what the timing of the game was and then replicated that, you know, um, for like, for example, like the bonus scoring is a good example of that where you want to go bang, 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 bang. You need to know like what the timing is between each of those pulses. And then you want to replicate that. Motor 1A for you. Exactly. Motor 1A. People. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, um, so, so what, uh, 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 what microprocessor are you using on your custom boards? Yeah. So I'm using a uh, microchip Atmel SAN okay. C20, which is a, it's a ARM uh, M0 plus processor. It's got 256K of flash. It runs at 48 megahertz. 
So it's pretty fast. So it's running at about twice the speed of the Arduinos uh, that Dick Hamill is using. Way overkill for this project, by the way. I mean, it is way overkill, but it seemed appropriate. Like if you're going to design a microprocessor, yeah. you should put something big in there, right? So, and and then um, are you are you running uh, are you running any type of operating system on there? No, or? no, this is an entirely bare metal implementation. Bare metal. Okay. Although it would have been a good candidate for an operating system like FreeRTOS. And, and frankly, in retrospect, uh, FreeRTOS probably would have been a good choice, but I, I just did my own task manager. I, I, um, I was I was going to ask because you've got threads. That's why I was asking. And you've got you've got um, timers. Um, so, how, so you actually wrote your own task manager for it. Correct. This. Yeah. So I just wrote a really simple. So there's a super loop in main. And then there are, I think, five or six uh, timer uh, there's a structure of you know timers basically, and then uh, and then there are tasks that are uh, that are basically triggered by any one of those timers reaching its timeout value, and then obviously the timer resets. So and they always have to be multiples of one millisecond. So there's a major one millisecond tick that's an interrupt that comes from a a hardware timer in the device, and in that interrupt, then what it does is it is it manages all five or six or whatever task timers in there and sees if any of them have expired. If it has, it asserts a tick. Um, it asserts a tick um, uh, register, it asserts that, and then, uh, and then resets the timer. And then the main loop just checks to see if the tick is asserted on any one of them. If it is, then it calls the task. I was going to ask you how you were maintaining the one millisecond time and interval and have the consistency of basically a real time uh, OS. And now I understand you have yeah. your own task manager, you're managing the whole thing. So it's exactly. you, you, you have the guarantee. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting. You know, you've mentioned a couple of times now about the Arduino has an Atmel on it. Um, we were talking about Arduinos before you're not talking about an Atmel chip now. Um, and you, you know, you've, you, you've joked a couple of times, like what you have now is like way, way overpowered for what was necessary. And even before with Dick's work, um, having the Arduino that it was, it was significantly more powerful than, than, than what the Bally units and the Stern units had. Um, it's, it's funny because, you know, I, I've worked with Arduinos professionally as well in, in the work that I do over the years. Um, and, you know, it's always viewed that they're like a companion um, device for a PC or some other thing. Or if you're doing something with them, they're limited in capability. But then when you, which, you know, there's some truth to that, but they're also extremely powerful systems. But when you compare them to the electronics that were in pinballs, or, you know, whether it's, it's an EM that you're working on, or or, or a Bally or a, or a Stern machine, they're significantly more, more powerful because they are, you know, 30 years newer. And so, Although the, the chipset's a little little bit older, given given that it's Atmel, and so it's just interesting to see how taking something that is viewed as slow is still the fast thing for the types of things that that you're trying to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and yeah. that overkill issue is also something that Brian Caven had to deal with with his Northeast MetroTech students uh, rebuilding that uh, game that is, you know, way overkill because he wants to teach them the controllers and all the hardware that would be used in much more elaborate systems. And I think he's addressed some of that in, in the thread on Pinside about, uh, yeah, I know it's way overkill, but this is what the kids need to know. And, and, and he said he's going to bring that game to the show also. Oh, that's and, great. And, and Dave, that actually uh, ties it back to the origin story that, that John had, which is it was when he was super young. That's actually, you know, he said that's what got him into doing engineering and electronics. Um, 
was was the exposure to pinball. And so what what Brian's doing as 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 you're mentioning, he's got a bunch of students that he's teaching these core, you know, STEM core electrical, you know, uh, skills to uh, 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 engineering skills using pinball as the as the vehicle to do that. I I want to have Brian on a on a future episode. So I'm really really glad that you 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 brought that up. Sounds awesome. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, and that was a dealer's choice, I believe. So 1973 uh, era. So we keep yeah. going back to the early so, 70s. So, so, uh, go ahead, John. Oh, I, I don't know if I, um, just as a full disclosure, I actually work for a microchip Atmel as a, oh. so that's my professional job. So, so I, uh, so I do have uh, inside access to, uh, you know, uh, AVRs and uh, SAM devices. So which is I'm, fun. I mean, I'm a huge Atmel fan. So. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Me yeah. too, actually. So, and uh, I would be, even if I didn't work for the company, I think the parts are great. So. <laughs> um. So, so I wanted to take a quick, a quick tangent here. Um. You know, you, you, when we started, you started talking about target alpha and we talked about the, what alt, what originally set you on this project, which was that the, that once the drop downs are down, they're down. Like, oh, there's, yeah. 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 Um, and so the, the like I if you can tell I love Target Alpha I love all the derivative games off of it El Dorado you know um, yep. uh, it, and there have been some solid state versions of versions of it also but That's the specific correct. machine that I'm looking for is a Gold Strike which is the Attaball version or Lucky Strike there's there's an Italian version as well and the specific reason for that is because in the case that I drop all the targets I can get the extra ball and I can play again. Um, which you know, or the Attaball, not the not the extra ball, which is the reason why I like the Attaball version of that specific layout. It's the exact same layout. The theme is not as good. It's not as good of a beautiful uh, machine as the artwork in Target Alpha, but at least it's it it is an Attaball version. So sure, you, yeah, you, you went the way better route, which is let's go fix this problem. Yeah, yeah, I just wanted to fix it. Um, you know, okay, and- I got another question. The other thing that people would complain about with those drop target games is. During the course of dropping them, if you drop more than one, oh yeah, yeah, same cycle. Yeah, you don't. By the way, you don't lose any score, so that's a great point. Yeah, so just like solid. So that's an excellent point. So, like, say if you hit two targets in parallel, um, you know, normally on a regular the EM version, you would only get three hundred points. I will give you six hundred points. Oh, awesome! Yeah, so you won't lose anything, and you are guaranteed. You know, whatever you drop, you will get all the points for them, which is really nice. So you don't lose. So you're right. That's a great point, Dave. That um, you know, it solves that problem too, because that just all gets queued. Nothing gets lost. And EM, of course, can only score on the hundred reel one time. It can only trigger the yeah, score motor. Yeah, the cycle of the you motor, know. you got all that time lag. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it becomes blind. It can score like a thousand point while it's giving you three hundred points. That works in an EM, but it can't. It can't retrigger another three hundred point. So yeah, it solves that problem as well. I also did some crazy stuff on it, like um, like the target reset. I do instantly. So like when you hit that last target, sometimes they'll even like kick the ball into the glass just to, just to prove a point, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I thought that would be kind of fun. And, uh, and then there's also a bonus that you get, which of course wasn't in the original game when you complete all of the targets. So, um, so like if you complete them, I I can't remember what I put in there, maybe 2000 points when you get the five bank and 3000, I think for the 10 bank. I think that's what I have in there right now. And then once it's microprocessor controlled, it can maintain the status of extra ball, like, you know, the extra ball rollovers, which are on the left and right and the special. So it, it can maintain that because it's in a microprocessor's memory. Uh, so even though the tanks, like on the original EM, that was all handled on the status of the all 10 or five targets being down, it would close as 
switch and that was what would light that light and enable that feature. Obviously we don't need any of that stuff, you know, um, when it's solid state control, we can just reset the bank and, you know, keep track of that separately. So, um, do you, uh, do you feel that the, that the target alpha project at this point is in a, is in a done state or is there more that you want to do it? Oh, I want to do a lot more. So, um, so I have another friend that has a uh, solar city, uh, right now and, uh, believe it or not, I'm in the process of helping him convert his game. And, uh, he's actually a really excellent software engineer, probably certainly a better software engineer probably than I am and a big rules guy. So like he's really into like you know modern sterns and you know lcd games and he knows every detail of every rule on an lcd game and so i think he's going to add a lot to the project with respect to much more advanced rules so so we want to get so right now um so currently it's in you know i would say uh, this is the second phase of the project uh maybe first um code release and so it completely replicates all the original target alpha rules plus unlimited bonus you know you don't lose any score um target bank reset attract mode is part of it as well um so it's got all of that um in the displays and you know the rgb leds it does animation so it like animates the bonus so you remember uh that's so wow. cool so all of the what would normally be dead drop targets lamps now they they so when you hit the target the, the it flashes uh, red. So when the target first drop, it flashes three times red and then it turns purple to match the, you know, the color of the game. And then when it's doing bonus, it turns all of them off and then it lights them green for the number of thousands of bonus that you have. And then it counts them down and then they just start disappearing <laughs> as the bonus is counting until they're all extinguished and then it kicks the ball out. So you might remember some Gottliebs that had that would count, you know, a bonus ladder. So yeah, the I linear thought, bonus ones. So, yeah, the linear bonuses. So exactly. So I wanted Target to replicate Alpha that. And Hot Shot, Big Shot are, are the rarer games where the targets themselves are the bonuses. As Correct. Opposed to one yeah. where you, you just add bonus or is what you see all over the play field. Yeah, yeah. So I wanted to take the bonus ladder animation and replicate that on target alpha, which of course it would never have had originally. Um, so, you know, you get that for free as well. So with the next version of code, you know, my friend and I were talking about, um, we want to do things like target hunting where like, where, you know, like a target that's worth a lot is, you know, there like and maybe strength. moves, but we can move it now with time and like change yeah. the flash rate and let you know, we're going to move. We can make that random. We can make it linear. Oh, awesome. um, we can, we can penalize you for a bad shot. So, which we may consider doing, which I, you know, that could get started. We can make the game pretty mean. Like if you don't hit the lit target. And you hit the rubber behind. And you hit the, the well, the, the rubber behind, I, I think what it is, if you hit the wrong target is probably what we're oh, going to yeah. do. Then we'll probably subtract your bonus. We could even keep negative bonus around where, where like, you know, we can't record negative bonus but we could we could diminish any bonus that you get until your bonus is positive. So we're considering things like that. So we may have some pretty mean rules with respect to. You better talk that over with Steve well, Ritchie when you see him at the show. Yeah, yeah, I probably should. So, actually. I, Steve I don't think he'd like that. On that. So, so, so that that's actually a a, a a a good connection back back to the very beginning. Like I'm, I I, I want to get out to 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 fantastic New England September seventh through the tenth to to see this machine like i love target alpha i love that play field um you you hit exactly the reason why the game is frustrating and like i like, like a day a, a 
Dave, I've got a problem actually now. I'm going to go to, pin, you know, if I go to Pintastic New England, I'm going to be on that machine the whole time. Like no one else is going to be able to play. So. <laughs> oh, he'll he'll figure out a way to punish you if you try to stay on. Too long. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, I hope the game stays up that long. I mean, it's been running for about a year and a half now. You know, I finished the conversion in January last well, year. Well, EM parts have that so. Gottlieb over engineering. Yeah, so but I, I, but I will say, fun. you know, I, I some learned things, which I didn't really talk about. You didn't ask me if I had any failures because I would have said yes. <laughs> and um, I've been having relay failures, which is kind of interesting. So one of the things I learned is that, um, you know, with uh, DC relays, you always have flyback diodes. So I'm sure you see those, you see them on your coils and all that kind of stuff. If you fail to put those in, it blows out, you know, your drive transistors and all that. Um, you cannot do that on a, uh, on a uh, AC relay because the, you know, the, it's the relay coils yeah. are driven in opposite directions, right. but you have the same problem with uh, flyback voltages and it was burning the contacts of my relays. Oh. So the game would work for three or four months and then it would start becoming unreliable. And, you know, like all of a sudden, instead of getting 300 points, I'd get 200. You know, I could tell that it wasn't scoring correctly. And then I'd replace the relay and it would be fine for another three or four months. So how did you figure out it was the relay? Um, so what I did is, uh, is I put my scope, my oscilloscope on the um, relay coil, verified that all the timing was correct. And then I looked at it on the other side and I could see there was a large voltage drop occasionally. So I could see that the relay contacts weren't zero ohms anymore. So I actually took the relays apart. You know, I yeah, did a failure analysis. This is like going to what the and, EM guy would do, look at the contact yep. points. And so, so I'll bring those to, to the talk. I'll bring the failed relays because you can actually see the contacts all burnt up, which is kind of interesting. So what I did is I added what's called a snubber circuit, which is uh, basically a resistor and a capacitor that, um, and also on the target bank resets, I added a MOD, a metal oxide varistor, which is the same that's used for like your AC, you know, to protect a transformer or protect an AC input on your power supply. So I did that about three months ago. So fingers crossed that that solves it, but there's a possibility at Pintasca, I may be changing some relays out. So <laughs> that, that's awesome. So um, why uh, I, Pentastic's going to sounds like it's going to be awesome. I I envy anybody who's going to see that target alpha alpha machine. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure having the both of you on the podcast. This has been extremely informative, going all the way from you know uh, operating machines to to modifying them, to modifying code, to modifying EM logic and and state and, and retrofitting with with DC circuits. Um, it's it's been an absolute pleasure talking to both of you. Are there? Do you have any parting words or any 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 last things about you know for an upcoming maker who's looking to 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 get going or try you know try something if they want to go and 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 update code like do you have any any words of wisdom for them? Yeah, yeah. There's there's so there's a lot of options. So the first thing is the off the shelf stuff is probably the way to go, and uh, probably the easiest thing is to take something like get an early solid state game and start with Dick Hamill's. You know, system. I think that's off the shelf hardware, very easy to get going. The Arduino stuff's pretty easy to uh, to modify and get going with. If you want to do something a bit more advanced, there's another option, and that is called the Lissy board series, called L I S Y. That's another open source project. It's uh, implemented by a guy named Ralph Thiel in Germany, a brilliant guy, and uh, much like Dick and. Uh, and he, uh, he basically took something called PinMame, which is the modular arcade machine emulator for pinball machines. And then he ported that to run on a Raspberry Pi. And then he designed custom controller boards for Gottlieb System 1s, System 80s, 
uh, the Valley 35s, and most recently the Williams games as well. The Williams System 6s, uh, I think up to, I don't know if he's done 11s, but I know he's done like one through six for sure. And I, I'm, um, I, I, I've actually been spending my my weekends going through the pin main code to to make an update to a couple WPC games. So it's it's really funny that you're 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 talking. About oh, that's that. awesome! Yeah. So what's cool about uh, about the Lissy system is that is that there you can choose to run the original ROM. So like if you've you know, if you ever dealt with the Gottlieb system ones or system eighties, the MPU is always dead on those games. If it isn't dead, it will be dead. It has been my experience. And so you're going to have to swap it out. And then there's, there's, you know, Neewumpf, which is actually designed locally by, yeah. by Dave, another Dave, actually. Another really Dave. Good guy. And I bought a game from him Dave too. Humphrey, so he's yeah. a real Dave Humphrey. Great guy. And uh, so there's his solution. And then, um, and then there's Pascal out of uh, France, which are really excellent board sets. So, uh, but then there is, uh, but the list is really cool. You just get an Arduino. So it's an open source board, plug it in, you run pin main, you run the original ROMs. That's what's unique about it is the original rule set. But then for modifications, you can now, you now have MPF, which is Mission Pinball Framework. Yeah, yeah. And that also runs on Lissy. And with Mission Pinball Framework, you can do whatever you want to customize your game without any hardware development whatsoever. So the Lissy board is awesome for that, as is, you know, Dick Hamill's solution as well. The, the Lissy board with MPF is a really, really good suggestion for those getting started. So, so listen, Dave and John, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. I can't wait to hear how fantastic uh, New England yeah. goes. And you just tell your listeners, uh, if they're anywhere near Massachusetts, uh, look at PintasticNewEngland.com to find out all the stuff about what's happening when and come out to the show if they possibly can. Yeah, I think you just told them. And and I look forward to hearing how it goes. Best best of luck to the two of you. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. It's been a pleasure. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks for listening. And I can't wait to see what you make. <laughs>